Liz Haddocks uh, with Haddocks Design Group, and Rick Franzi asked me to introduce Evo Chijan this morning because uh, Commerce West Bank has been my business bank since I founded my company over 12 years ago. And I've stayed with them all of these years because they take a customized approach to banking and to your individual business needs, and I can't speak highly enough of them. Um, and some of the products that they've they've offered over time is they've come up with solutions for companies like remote deposits, you know, re- remote deposit systems, which we use, by the way, and mobile banking, which is great for the business owner, and complimentary seminars once a quarter on topics that are of interest to business owners. So uh, all of these things have been great and valuable to our company, and they've truly been, thank you, Paul, They've truly been um, a great business partner with us, and they've helped us reach our business goals. So with that said, if you can all help me welcome Evo Tijan up to the podium. All right. Well, thank you for the uh, warm introduction, and thank you to Rick and the team. So... I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the bank. I just want to say that we're proud to be a sponsor today. We're proud to be here, and uh, we're proud to support the uh, business activities in Orange County. I'm going to go ahead and go for um, the introduction for Kevin Bailey. Uh, Kevin is the Vans and VF Action Sports Coalition president with more than 25 years of brand leadership and retail experience with global companies. Kevin held various, various leadership roles within the Vans brand, leading retail operations at Vans between 2002 and 2007 to enhance the brand through improving the retail performance and upgrading its own store environment and consumer experience. Today, Kevin is responsible for the development of Vans' global brand strategy, including overseeing brand marketing and the product line, as well as the direct responsibility for sales in the Americas. In 2014, Vans became VF's second largest company, earning $2 billion in revenue. <laughs> and has seen 23 consecutive quarters of double-digit growth. Vans has gone from about $320 million in revenue to two billion in just ten years. My second introduction is for Michael. Michael, starting with no money and no knowledge of his business, Michael Houlihan, along with his partner Bonnie Harvey, developed a strong entrepreneurial culture to overcome formidable obstacles in the highly competitive and controlled wine industry, my favorite. <laughs> Creating what is today the world's number one best-selling wine brand, Barefoot Wine. Michael is sought after international speaker and corporate trainer, keynoting from the World Conference in Entrepreneurship in Dublin, Ireland, to the National C-Suite Conference in Los Angeles. He is a recipient of the Distinguished Entrepreneur Speaker Award from Bradley University and the Distinguished Alumni Award from the California State University, Long Beach. He and Bonnie recently released a companion book to their New York Times bestseller entitled The Entrepreneurial Culture, 23 Ways to Engage and Empower Your People. 
this month, they release their much-anticipated video series called The Spend Less, Monetize Faster with the Entrepreneur's GPS TM. Please welcome and... Please welcome a real-life example of the American entrepreneurial spirit, Michael Houlihan. While they're getting seated, I just want to let you know that uh, Ray Brandt, Ray, you're right there. Raise your hand. If anybody would like to go to a employment breakfast put on by Women Helping Women, are you familiar with the organization? This is a free breakfast event, and the speaker, keynote speaker, is Keith Morrison. You may be familiar with Keith Morrison. So if you're interested, all you have to do is see Ray so that you can get registered. It is 7.30 to 9 a.m. Friday, October 16th. So it's coming up. So thank you, Ray, for bringing this to my attention. I hope some of you will be able to go. Women Helping Women is a fine organization here in Orange County in Southern California. Okay. Are we mic'd up and ready to go? One of the things that Kevin mentioned to me that I was not aware of is that in addition to his responsibility for the big brand Vans, $2 billion, he also has responsibility for two other brands, Reef, which is a sandal brand in Carlsbad, and their sales are $110 million. And another brand, Eagle Creek Travel Luggage, is $35 million. So in addition to growing the Vans brand, he also has the responsibility for shepherding those two brands, somewhat similar in size to many of you here in the audience. So I'm really excited that he brought that to my attention. So let's, let's get this party started, all right? This first question is for both of you, and I'd like to ask you... Can you start by describing your philosophy for identifying potential new markets? Start with Kevin with your product properties, and then Michael, when you and Bonnie were with Barefoot Wine. Okay, Kevin, would you like to get started first? Sure. Thanks, Rick. Um, in terms of how we look at potential new markets, there's a couple factors we take into play. Um, first, of course, um, we generally have an overview of where we have strength in terms of organizational abilities. Um, if, if we don't have the ability to activate a market, why would we, we target that market? But we, we do a careful study of our competitors, of what we would call our brand complementers, so brands that we think we sit well next to. Um, I think people forget that one. You think about your competitors, but you don't think about your complementers. Um, we look really carefully at the economic conditions in the location. Uh, we look at the trade barriers. Uh, that's become a, a bigger play now is, is thinking about trade barriers. Um, and overall, we look at then ultimately our consumer. We've got a very well-defined view of our consumer through, through some studies we've done. And we really look at are the activators for that consumer present in the market? So, you know, we're viewed traditionally as a skateboarding brand, but we view our brand across four pillars, action sports, music, art, and what we call street culture, which is sort of a fashion and other elements to it. And we look at are those, where are those, and how are they activated, and what is the potential for utilizing those to grow our brand in the market? And we look really carefully at those various pieces. So the business conditions, the economic conditions, um, our competitors and, and complementers, and then ultimately our consumers and how well they activate in the market. Um, and that, that ultimately is probably the first way we look at how we evaluate white space potential for the brand. Um, and then we, we go about sequencing and deciding which ones, how, how big is the size of the prize, right? So size, the ability in the market, the potential in the market, and decide are these the right markets to attack at this time. Thank you. Give me a round of applause for the first answer. So it's always tough to be the first guy speaking, right? Well, I couldn't agree with Kevin Moore. You have to be very careful when you expand your business. 
we expanded barefoot in Hawaii. We thought it was a perfect place. Everybody was running around barefoot. The beaches, <laughs> the beaches were covered with bare feet, and half the bars were called barefoot bars. So we thought, this is a natch, right? So went over there, and uh, boy, everybody bought it. Um, came back, uh, couldn't wait for the reorders. Well, they never got any reorders. And uh, that's when we realized that, you know, I had to get back over to Hawaii and find out why there wasn't any reorders. When I got over there, I found out that that the people who had bought it the first time sold through it and that my distributor's reps didn't sell it to them a second time because they were being spiffed to sell something else that was going to make them $5 a case. And so then we began to realize, oh, my gosh. So we, we got it back into the marketplace, and I came home, and I told Bonnie, I said, you know, I think we've got this under control now. I think, you know, Hawaii's going to work for us. A month went by, no reorders. I got ready to go back to Hawaii, and she goes, wait a minute, Baba, you're not going back to Hawaii. Take a look at this. When you go to Hawaii, this is what it costs, and here's what we're making on Hawaii. So let's put that to bed for two years. So here you have the largest wine brand in the world made a huge mistake right out of the bag. We actually expanded too fast into too many markets. And to Kevin's point, why? Because we couldn't support the market. And also, the, the, the one thing that we see over and over again today is that inventors and people with great ideas and applications, technology and bricks and mortar ideas, they underestimate grossly the cost of sales. In the case of Hawaii, we finally did go back into Hawaii, but we had to go back there with a cop. He was our representative. He didn't work for our distributor. He worked directly for us. He was on our payroll. And his job was to make sure it stayed on the market, to make sure it stayed on the shelf, to make sure that even if a competitor was spiffing our distributor salesperson to put another product up, that that didn't happen, and to make sure that our signs were up, to make sure that our prices were correct. And that was like a full-time job. And we had to pay him $40,000 a year base salary plus commission. So where do we come up with the 40000 We started in a laundry room. We had no money, no knowledge of our industry. Cash flowed the whole thing. The banks wouldn't give us any money. So we had to hire a cost accountant. And that was the smartest thing we ever did. All of a sudden, we knew exactly how much it was going to cost each unit in each market. And as Kevin says, your cost might be different in different markets depending upon what your infrastructure looks like, depending upon what the competition was. So we developed an attitude going to new markets, which is strike where the enemy is not. So we became a big hit in places that nobody ever heard of, like Oregon. (laughs) But we established ourselves as being a fast mover in Oregon. And then we could go to another place like Idaho and say, what do you think of this? This is what they're doing in Oregon. And we did that state after state, country after country around the world. Thank you, Michael. Give him a round of applause. Rick, Rick can I just tag on to Michael's Hawaii comment? Hey, it's your show. Bringing one of the van stories closer to home, uh, I'll go back, oh gosh, it's almost 10 years ago, as Vans, which was predominantly a West Coast brand, right, born and, born and bred here, as we tried to expand across the U.S., we looked at Florida and said, well, gosh, it's just like California. Lots of coastline, lots of young people, um, you know, a, a good market for us to tackle. Well, we went to Florida thinking it was just like California and fell on our faces, and we didn't understand why. We're like, well, coastlines, kids wear these. Well, we also know humidity is different there, right? So they weren't wearing vans without socks um, there because they couldn't. Uh, as sand got in the shoes and more humid, uh, it's more of a stick-and-ball market. 
So in terms of the sports the kids are interested in, surfing, skateboarding doesn't play as big a role. And we had to sort of step back because our first stores that we opened there really struggled to hit the hurdle rate. So we had to step back and retrench ourselves and rethink what we were doing um, and, and eventually got Florida going. It took a little longer than normal, but that taught us a lot as we looked at other, re- other, con- other states around the U.S. It seems like you might have learned more from things that didn't work as anticipated than those that did. Is that a fair thing for me to say? You think? You think? Well, that's the part of a peer group. We help you to alleviate some of those trial and error mistakes that happen in business. We've all experienced them. You know, uh, Michael brought up something, Kevin, that makes me want to ask you. When you enter a new market, what I'm interested in learning about is what are the key metrics or results that your team monitors early on, right, to determine if you've if your initial strategy is working in that new market, what are the key things you're looking at at your from your position early in the decision to implement a new market strategy? Yeah, it's there's sort of two big areas I guess I'd look at. One is Michael referenced with the Hawaii example, I think, which is, you know, of course we're looking at the obvious ones, right? Sell in and then ultimately sell through, and sell through is going to be the better indicator of the health in the, in the market and how well we're doing, um, and then the reorder base, and are, are we getting that? We're looking at the financials around our margins and how the margins are maintained there. Are are we over-inventorying the market? Are we under-inventorying the market? How is that margin holding up over the time that we're there? So that we because we don't like to see our product on markdown. The other thing we do, and, and probably again based on our size and scale, helps us. Um, we do a lot of work around brand health, and we we do some brand health studies down to a pretty tight geography to really understand how is the consumer perceiving our brand across the key elements that we want to understand our brand across. Um, And and are we um, meeting their needs? What's our awareness levels? What's our consideration set? How often are we bought by that consumer? So there's a whole metric in the brand health funnel sort of that we spend a lot of time understanding how our brand is doing in the marketplace. But in the beginning, it's it's really the traditional numbers around sell-in, sell-through, and, and our margin maintenance. Can I ask a follow-up question? Are you less or more patient with your smaller brands early on? Oh, gosh. I, th- I think we're probably a little more patient. And, again, it's a portfolio approach, so we can leverage you know Vans Health against some of our smaller brands, and I can take more risk with the smaller brands. Um, however, they're held to some pretty tight standards as well. They don't get the benefit of the brand health studies that we can do for a big brand. You know, Vans, we can do a lot more work around consumer insights and brand health than we can with Reef and Eagle Creek, who are much smaller. Um, So they're more going around the traditional route of trying to understand the marketplace, looking at things like NPD data to see what's going on with the brands, and then as well, ultimately, it's just the sales results. Great. Thank you. Michael, is there something you wanted to add to that? Well, I was just going to say that uh, for our part... um, what Kevin brought up, which is basically that the reorder is more important than the order. As long as you're not in a place, you can't fail. But once you're in a place, then you're in trouble. Now you have to succeed because if you get the reputation of being a failure, then nobody's going to want to buy you anymore. So in our case, we had to really watch every new market, you know, with all three eyes just to make sure that we were getting that reorder. Uh, We we had a a situation in Minnesota where we had a chain store, and they had had their their key store, which was in St. Paul, and they weren't selling barefoot. All their other stores were selling barefoot. So I got on a plane, and I flew to St. Paul to see what was going on in the store. Now, mind you, our representatives had been in the store and everybody else, and they didn't notice that the potato chips were right in front of the barefoot. So it's stupid stuff like that. And, and 
just because it wasn't scanning, the buyer for that chain was saying it's not selling in store number 296 in St. Paul. Because his idea of sales is scans. And that's when we realized that we had to do everything for his company to make sure it scanned. Hmm. We had to make sure, for instance, the numbers were right to get in the back door of his of his uh, stores. Several of them had programmed the wrong numbers, so they were refused at the back door from his own warehouse. Sometimes they wouldn't put the right reorder numbers on the shelf, so they scanned wrong and they didn't get reordered. Sometimes they were priced wrong. Sometimes they put the wrong UPC in at the cash register. So those are the kinds of things that we were really keen on because we got our butt kicked so much on this score that when we went into a new market, we really policed the heck out of it. And we still found out new things every year that we had never dreamed that we would have to do. We say, learn how to do the other guy's job without ticking him off and thank him for it and recommend him to his boss. Isn't it great to have these two people here as panelists, huh? It really is. Peer learning. I'd yes. add one more thing, too, which is targeting where you want to be when you enter the market. So where do you want your product to be placed? So for Vans, we have a very disciplined segmentation model. So we know that if we don't show up in the really small accounts, and, and it's probably similar for Michael's business, but the boutiques, the core skate and board shops, if we don't show up there in a meaningful way, we won't make it down the pyramid into the larger, more commercial distribution. So we have to make sure when we enter a new market that we show up in the right place um, first and foremost. So we're willing to take a smaller number going into the market to make sure we successfully enter the market and we build aspiration first and then allow that to cascade down. Because if we enter the market at the more commercial level, um, which will quickly pay for the entry to the market, but ultimately that's all you'll make it. You won't be able to move up the ladder into the more aspirational distribution. So we focus on landing first in core board shops, in boutiques, and then allowing that to think about then the lifestyle channel, which, as we call it, which is, I'll call it the mall for us here in the U.S., but the mall are the high streets in Europe. Um, and then lastly, the more, the more mass distribution of sporting goods chains or large department stores is the last place we worry about because that's another way we measure is what count shelf space in those board shops. Do we occupy the right number of shelf spaces compared to our competition? Well, I think those the answers to that question for those two gentlemen uh, paid for the price of admission, frankly, if you put them in your business. Starting small is important, and knowing where you want to start is what I heard uh, relative to what Kevin said. And if you're not in a market, you can't fail. I think that if anybody's tweeting, that's probably something we could put out there for the others who aren't there. And if you're listening to us online on octalkradio.net, you are welcome to send us a question. I understand that we have a question. Is that true, Natalie? Yeah, we do. Um, So this is on behalf of those who are listening to the stream. Um, This is for both panelists. In your experience, what are some common mistakes companies make when they are developing their strategy to enter a new market? Who would like to answer that first, Michael or Kevin? Common mistakes. And then we're going to be taking questions from the audience, so get ready. Are you ready? Anybody in the audience have a question? Okay, we'll come to you. Jeff will be next, and then Jim. Okay. Okay, so I would say the most common mistake is that they fall in love with their brand, their product. They fall in love with the success that they've had in a regional area, and they want to take that show on the road. But they grossly underestimate the true cost of sales. Okay, so like, how much does it cost to do everybody's job? See, people don't think about that. 
you know, what if your product sells out and it's in the back room, but it never gets from the back room back to the shelf? See, how much does that cost to have a person in that market to do that chore as rudimentary as it sounds? So, I mean, I thought I was in the wine business, right? Sniff, swirl, right? (laughs) Sip, you know? Talk about mid-notes, say some French words. But no. (laughs) I was in the distribution management business. No, I think that was a great answer, Michael. I think the... The things I'd say are, you know, often people choose the wrong partner. And especially when I think about our smaller brands, the risk of them becoming a really small fish in a really big pond with a big partner in a, in a market, um, I don't know, let's say we're going to open in Argentina and we pick a partner that has much larger brands in their portfolio, our small brand isn't going to get a heck of a lot of attention. So sometimes it's better to be in a small shop as we enter that market. And then I think ultimately the biggest mistake I see with some of our, I'll use China's example as we enter China, is really understanding a win-win um, and focusing on building a win-win because ultimately we know what we want, right, as we enter a market, but do we understand how to make a partner successful as well? Because at the end of the day, a lot of people will enter China and go really fast because there's no, there's no, there's no slow and steady wins the race in China. You have to go fast. Well, a lot of people go in and open you know, way too many points of distribution, but don't contemplate what the partner's profitability is going to be in that in that scenario. And ultimately, one day you're sitting there with a ton of revenue, and your partner starts going, "Well, I'm not so profitable, and I'm not so sure I want to do business with you anymore." In the way we do it today, and now you're hostage to the situation. So, making sure that you go in, and if you have to, you know, hit the pause button after you enter the market. Find a way to make sure that the profitabilities work for both you and your partner, and then re-engage on growth again. Um, so I, th- I think that's a big one, is seeking a win-win as you enter a new market. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Turning uh, the questions now into the audience, Jeff Shattuck, Dot Fulfillment. You had a question. Would you stand up with the microphone and ask it? Be loud and proud. And by the way, this Commerce West pen is great. I've been using it up here to take notes. This thing writes beautifully. Thank you for giving us a quality pen. It's in the wrong business. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So both of your brands are well known for the culture that you have. And I'm wondering, as you approach new markets and you have new teams in those markets, how you make sure your culture translates well into that market? Really good question. We, we have a very specific model about sequencing as we enter a market, and um, that's, that's a big part of what we do. So you know, we're viewed as this teenage skater boy brand for sure, um, but we view ourselves as much bigger, part of our growth um, that, that was brought up in the beginning is, is due to that, that focus on being bigger than a skate brand. So we have a pretty good orientation plan for folks in terms of bringing them into the culture and teaching about the culture, but then we have a very specific sequencing model as to how to launch the brand in the market to ensure that the key elements of the brand remain intact. So skateboarding comes first. They have to win at skateboarding when they enter a market, as an example. In China, if 1% of the market here in the U.S. skateboards, well, it's 0.00001% in China – but that doesn't let the team off from making sure we win the skateboarding market in China. It may be a very small investment to do so, but they have to do that first. Um, so as we think about those, those platforms, they have to launch in the market. They have to do it in a very specific sequencing order, and that's the way we enter the market. And then culturally, it's, it's regular visits. So we have a team that we send around and, and make sure that we sort of inoculate the, the local market with that culture. So putting on a skate contest, putting on a music show that fits the brand. Um, so a, a big part of it comes from that. Um, and I was just in India a few months ago, and we haven't been in India very long with our partner, and was shocked at 
what a great job they were doing. I mean, I thought about our founder and at age 82 and how excited he'd be to see this brand in India the way it was. So, you know, thus far, Knockwood, it's working, um, but it, it is a challenge as we enter new markets. I, I worry about the risks of how the brand can be turned into a fad in certain, mar- certain markets, and we've seen that in our past, um, where a certain shoe, the slip-on, has gotten over-amplified in a market to the point that the brand loses who they are and the consumer says, oh, you're a slip-on brand and forgets all the rest of the brand. So it's it's a very, you have to pay very close attention, obviously, to it. But I think thus far, that approach to sequencing what must happen in what order has worked so far. Great. I understand we have another question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, for us, the way that we maintained our culture was we took a message from our logo. It's a barefoot. And so when you see a barefoot, on the beach, you don't know if it's a man or a woman, you don't know if it's gay or straight, you don't know if it's white or black, you don't know if it's a Catholic or a Jew, you don't know anything about it except it's the human footprint that we make on the planet. You wouldn't want to put your foot on a piece of glass and you wouldn't want to put your foot in a polluted ocean. So when we got started, we looked for strategic alliances that were already networked that we could work with to get the word out in the various states and countries that we expanded into. So at the time when we started, there was a group here uh, in Orange County that was called the Surfrider Foundation. They only had three uh, chapters. And so we went in there and we had a hang 10 for clean water program where we actually asked people not only for $6 for our bottle of wine, but also to give $10 to hang 10 for clean water. And we educated our market, which was a 37-year-old mom with two kids looking for Tuesday night wine that was consistent, about the fact that her kids were in the ocean every day and getting infections because of the problems with the ocean. And that the Surfrider Foundation was the only people who tested the water every day and kept it clean. We used that philosophy and that platform as we moved across the United States. So we moved, when we finally got to Florida, when we got to Michigan, they all had Surfrider Foundation chapters. So we actually expanded with the Surfrider Foundation. So it's a little different than saying, I'm a good boy because I donated this money to this organization over here and god bless the people who do that we're not doing that what we're doing is we're actually going after the members of the Surfrider foundation so that we have a core of buyers because remember when you go into a new state that first store has to be mobbed by people that want to buy your product so we gave them a social reason to buy our product which was stronger than a mercantile reason thank you very much one of the things that i took away and i took a note on was Uh, know your ideal client. When Michael described who the ideal client was, the 37-year-old woman, I mean, do you understand, regardless of what market you're in, who is the early adopter and who you're really, who's the sweet smart, sweet spot for your brand? Thank you for sharing that, both of you. I understand we have a question up here with Craig Stenberg of Cone Engineering. Craig, stand up and be proud. (laughs) And loud. Yeah. And then we're going to come to the back of the room for questions. So if there's questions in the back of the room, you're up next. It's just a question for Kevin. I'm not too sure I know much about Barefoot One and that respect. But for me, it was the Vans Triple Crown. What got you to do such a big promotion when you were not a big company? What was the risk evaluation? And what was your time? How long are you willing to spend that much money in a super niche market before you were going to get your payback on it? Normally, it would be pretty tight. 
how long did that process go? And and just to kind of give me some feedback now, how's it working for you now? I, I know it's pretty pretty uh, successful at this point. Yeah. So the Vans Triple Crown, for everyone who may not know, is um, we put on a, the final surf event of the pro season happens in Hawaii every year in December. Um, it's three events uh, over the course of about a month, uh, culminating with the final event at uh, a break on the North Shore of Oahu called called the pipe uh, Billabong Pipeline and or Pipeline and Billabong hosts that event as part of this series. Um, Vans actually had a lot of Triple Crown events if you go back to the years when we were a mess. So Vans, Vans actually almost went out of business twice and prior to our acquisition in 2004. Um, and at, at one point, we really were the precursors of the X Games. We put on a series of events called the Vans Triple Crowns of Skate. There was a surfing, surfing one, there was a snowboarding one, there was a BMXing one. We had a, a whole series that went on around the U.S. The Dew Tour has sort of taken over that role, and then the X Games came up um, to take in that place as well. And those events got us in trouble. So to your point, in terms of investment and time and energy, we got in trouble by, by overextending ourselves into things that we had no competence in, uh, which was running these events. We're good at running an event. Uh, we do one now down in Huntington Beach every year the last three years. I think we've helped to clean up that event for downtown. But the, the reality of those events is they are time-consuming. So we, we sh- got rid of all those other events. We shed ourselves of everything except for one, which was the Triple Crown of Surfing in Oahu. Um, and our reason for being on that was the brand actually came from surfing. Uh, we get thought of as a skateboard brand, but the skaters that adopted us were trying to emulate their surf heroes on dry land. So in many ways, we came from that. Our founder, Paul Van Doren, you know, met Duke Kanemoko years and years ago and and made shoes, as we were talking earlier about, from one of his Hawaiian shirts for him. And so surfing is really at the root of who Vans is in many ways. We felt that the Triple Crown being the final element to the season for pro surfing and where the champion has been determined the last three years have come down to that event is something that that extends a halo for the brand. And that's a really tough decision. We have a number of things we do that we view as halo events that are really hard to build an MROI off of. I will say we've done a lot of MROI work, though, recently, and those events have scored really, really high, and we see a lot of leverage out of those events in terms of, of our MROI results. Um, so we feel like that's one we want to hang on to. We own that event, um, so that, that benefits us as well. So others pay to sponsor events at that event. Um, so that's, that's why that one has stayed in the portfolio, because it really is the Super Bowl of surfing at the end of the day. Um, so for us, it seems like a worthy one to do. That said, we're not really sponsoring other events in a big way. We took on the U.S. Open in Huntington Beach because we felt like it was a ba- our backyard, and a competitive company had come in. Um, to our backyard, and we felt like that was a bad thing to let happen. So our approach to what we call defend and extend, so defend our yard and then extend ourselves into new markets to the prior question, we felt like we had to take on the U.S. Open um, here and defend Huntington Beach as our backyard, as an endemic brand in the space. Um, Hawaii arguably is an extend, but it does give me a reason to go to Hawaii the first week of December every year. (laughs) Never a bad thing. Michael, did you want to add something from your perspective? No, I just love this whole idea of uh, doing events uh, to get the halo effect. I think that's a really uh, a great idea. Uh, we did beach cleanups. You know, there, there was no MRI that we could measure. However, because we were out there as a commercial brand cleaning up a beach, they would see our logo and they'd say, look at these guys, see? So the people who went to the beach hopefully 
when they decide what brand of wine they were going to choose, they would choose ours because they saw the logo out there and they knew what we were doing. Again, it was give your customer a social reason to buy your product. Thank you. And surfing is a challenging one for my team. They know that I'm on them about getting paid for surf sponsorships. So as we look at Billabong, Quicksilver, and the other large surf brands that are out there, I question regularly, do we get paid for surfing? Um, it's hard to say how much wearing Vans canvas shoes, which a lot of surfers do wear, gets us value there. But to me, it's are we selling enough board shorts and, and other items that you could perceive as a surf-based product to counter the cost of those events and the cost of athletes. So that's, that's one they know I expect more of them from. Um, so hopefully uh, we've gotten some traction there, but we, we, we have a little bit more room to make up to compete with some of the big guys. Thank you. I just want to call your attention to uh, Evo's going to ask the next question, then we're coming to the back of the room. So, Betty, you'll be next, okay? Uh, you have an interest card in your, in your agenda. Please put your name and information on that throughout this because we're going to collect them and we're going to have a drawing for a bunch of different things at the end. So I want to make sure we can make the collection quickly. So if you could find that interest card, put your name and phone number on there, check any boxes that might be appropriate. My wife, Deborah, will be coming around shortly to pick that up so that we can have the drawing after we're done with the panel discussion. There's an iPad mini that we're giving away. There's a new Kindle that we're giving away. There's this lovely piece of art that's being given away. Plus, I have some uh, gifts from the Center Club, uh, admission to one of their upcoming events. So you don't want to miss any of that stuff. So please do that now. But Evo, I know you had a question. Um, so we had this little recession that came in. Uh, so twofold, the question. Number one is, any big lessons or takeaway from the recession in terms of how you manage the business? And the second part to that is, how has the customer behavior changed pre-recession to post-recession? Is there things that you do differently now because the behavior has changed with that retail client? Well, uh, we went through a recession in the 90s, and we learned a lot from that one. What we learned was that you do have to take a hit on your pricing. And so, but you don't sell your product for less. What you do is you give credits. You never sell below your stated value. You always keep your value the same. And then you offer a temporary discount. And what we found was that our temporary discounts were tied to quantity. And what we learned in the first recession was that if they buy large, they sell large. And the reason is is because they have to move it out quickly because they're under a lot of pressure. So we started to realize that actually the recession was a good thing for us because it forced us to sell in large quantities. And with these large quantity purchases, the buyer's warehouse guy was screaming at him and say, hey, you bought all this barefoot wine. We got to get rid of it. So he put it on sale. So that would, that would uh, approach the recession consciousness that all of a sudden they'd see it on sale. So that would move out quite a bit of product for us. So after the recession, they said, well, do you have any more of those deals? And so it did change the way that we marketed the product. We became much more of a mass-marketed product, selling at you know, full truckload levels. That's 1,256 cases in a 40-foot van on an 18-wheeler. Which is, which is the most efficient way to sell anything in the United States, by the way. I'd add, I'd add a couple things. Um, one, it's probably not the answer you want to hear, but at some point we were a little recession-proof. Um, oh. We're a youthful-based business, and we sell a product that overall is a fairly – our primary product, our Vans Classics canvas vulcanized shoes, are fairly low-priced given the competition out there. So what we heard from our consumers, particularly moms at Back to School, was that they could buy two pairs of Vans for their kids for the price of a pair of 
you know, well-known athletic shoes that were significantly more, and the kids thought the purchase was cool. So they could have two pairs of shoes, interchange their shoes, and I, I wandered a few trade shows during that time where competitors said to me, gosh, I wish I had an iconic item like yours that was affordable, per, affordable that kids still thought was cool because we'd sell those all day. So to some extent, we, we had a little bit of a, of a safety at that moment. Now, that said, we didn't do nothing. Um, we focused on inventory management at that point because we knew we had to manage cash flow in case anything happened. So we got really tight on inventory management um, and didn't we've, – we've managed a model that's very tight on having available-to-purchase product. So we run essentially a fully futures-based ordering system on product. If they don't order it when the ordering window opens, we don't have it when they need it. So there's not a lot of instantaneous response product available for our, our accounts. But we got even tighter on that and really ratcheted down so that raw materials um, got tight in terms of any excess raw materials or B-grades or um, out-of-season product or going out-of-season product. We, w- we really managed inventory tight and tied uh, our operating disciplines in a, and forecasting in a much tighter way so we would manage closer and not get ourselves overextended. The, the results post uh, to your second part of that question is that we definitely have seen a more value-driven consumer, right? We've seen an increase in outlet business. You've seen an increase in fast fashion happen post-recession, and, and those things are real. What we've done is say, look, don't, that doesn't mean we have to sell the product cheaper, to Michael's point. We don't have to discount what we do. What we do have to do is tell the value story and focus on telling the authenticity parts of our brand, why the the quality of what you get for the price that you pay makes sense. Um, And for some cases, it's even the cultural side of the culture of this product gives you a reason to want to wear it. Therefore, the price makes sense. So making sure that we tell the stories that they need to hear to believe that the purchase is worth it um, is a big part of it. And it might be the Surfrider story as an example for Michael. Tell that story and the consumer says, well, you know, I'm doing something good by buying this product and I'm going to buy this product because they stand for something I believe in. So I I think it's not just, gosh, I want to save money when I buy. It's I want to believe that the money I spend has value to it. Thank you. All right. We have about 15 minutes left for the questions. And Betty, Dr. Betty Uribe, you had your hand up. I see you're standing up and you have a microphone. All right, Betty. I do. Good morning. And thank you so much, Dr. Betty Uribe from California Bank and Trust. We've been focusing externally so far this morning. I'd like to turn it over and focus internally to you as leaders. And I've heard of values from both of you in your strategy, your values-based product, really your values-based customer. I'd like to turn it internally a little bit and talk to, uh, and have you talk. What are your core values, your personal core values, and how do you permeate those values throughout your organization to have created the kinds of results that you've created? Um, I think there's a couple for me. I, I came into an organization that was – uh, very much run by um, someone who's very directive in their approach. It was the right leader during the time that Vans was going through a turnaround and an acquisition, etc. Um, great leader, but very directive. So in many ways uh, held the organization up from growing um, as individuals. So I actually had left the company at that point. I was working for Vans and left um, to pursue a bigger opportunity elsewhere. And uh, when I was asked to come back, I came back to an organization that I came back to run the company um, as president at that time, and another uh, person came in from the outside to run one of the brands that now reports to me. So my prior, the prior leader of Vans brought in two people from outside of 
the business to run those companies. And I remember looking at my team who knew me from my prior time, and I said, are you happy to have me back? And they went, oh, sure. (laughs) That's a ringing endorsement. And I waited a while, and probably about the fourth staff meeting, I purposely was laying low and not making decisions just to see how they'd react, and they were starting to complain. You know, they were going to HR to complain about me. And I called an all-stop at the meeting and said, okay, how many of you are happy to see me back here? And they all went, sure we are. And I said, bullshit. Honestly, sorry for the radio. Bleep that one. Hit the the button, seven-second pause. (laughs) But I said, if you're happy to have me back, then you shouldn't be here because then you don't want to be a leader. And because you should have been sitting in this chair and my job, so one of my core values is developing my people. So I instantly established a leadership, um, sort of a learning culture. I pulled HR aside and said, I want a learning culture at this company. The next person to run one of our brands better come from inside this brand. That's, that's not acceptable to me that we have to go outside. Sure, there are moments in time you have to do that and add to the gene pool, right, and, and, and bring new talent in that have different skill sets that you need at that moment. But for me, building a learning culture was really important. Rick made a comment at the beginning about, you know, what drives him and, and that whole idea of helping others develop. So years ago, someone asked me why I do what I do, and I said because somewhere in the room of the people that work for me is me once upon a time. And my job is to see that little ember in them and, pour gasoline, for lack of a better way to say it, on them and help them achieve something bigger that they dream of. So that's, that's probably my biggest value is establishing this learning culture and helping them take on responsibility for their own personal development, but letting them know that I'm there to give them a hand up if they want to. So that, that's my number one value. So I took all my time to talk about just one thing, but hope that's, hopefully that makes sense. So uh, for us, we didn't want to get into the wine business. We got into it uh, by accident. Bonnie had a client who was owed for three crops worth of grapes by a large winery that had just declared bankruptcy. And, of course, she asked her new boyfriend, me, (laughs) to go see what I could get out of him. And so the only thing I could get out of him was goods and services. So I had bulk wine and bottling services. So now we had to put together an entire marketing program and a distribution program, and a personnel program, and a cash flow program. Well, people say follow your passion. We didn't follow our passion. We followed our opportunity passionately. Mm -hmm. So we took our passion into our opportunity. And what was our passion? Well, Bonnie grew up outside of Portland, and I grew up outside of San Francisco. I worked down here in Anaheim when this whole place was getting developed. I watched the orange trees get cleared. I watched the beaches get developed down here. I went to uh, Long Beach State. So I'm a conservationist. Imagine that. Also, Bonnie and I don't have kids. So over half of our friends are gay. So guess what? I'm into human rights. So those are our passions. Conservation, human rights. So we thought, now how are we going to project this into our business in a way that is going to have an ROI? And so when we talked earlier about expansion into new markets, one of the things we did was we looked for nonprofit organizations that were doing just that. And we donated our wines and services to those nonprofit organizations in the hopes that their members would buy our products. And we had an opportunity to make a big difference. We could do something they couldn't do. We could take their message and bring it into the supermarket 
actually take their message and put it on the neck of a bottle of wine and educate a wine shopper about something that was going on in their region that was either conservation-based or civil rights-based. So we felt very good, very, very, uh, you know, uh, fulfilled as a result of being able to do that. It wasn't just a commercial enterprise for us. And today, we're helping young people. As I said, we didn't have any kids. So the millennials are our kids. And we feel this responsibility to, to help them, to prevent them from making the mistakes we made. And so in the last two years, we've spoken at 40 universities that teach entrepreneurship. And these kids look at us and they go, wow, you really collected, connected the dots for us. And so that makes us feel good. So that's what our passion is. And... Uh, we hope that you all follow your passion and find a way to take your passion into your business. It makes business more fun, more fulfilling, and ultimately more profitable because you're really excited about it. Well, I want to, again, can we give them both? Uh... <laughs> but the quality of the answers is directly related to the quality of the questions that you're asking today. This is why I love to ask as few questions as I can during the conference, because I know the questions that are coming from the audience are deeper and richer. So thank you very much. If you've asked a question, thank you very much for being a part of the process. And for those of you that would like to have asked a question, we only have time for one more. And uh, Vic Hausmanniger, would you stand up and ask your question, please? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, first, congratulations again on the success of your companies. Uh, I'm glad that uh, my family has been able to contribute to vans. Uh, they surf, they ski, they go to school, and uh, get grandkids and kids. So uh, I'm glad to do that. I haven't been able to contribute to your profitability yet on Barefoot, but I will try to wind out as soon as we get out of here. So, uh, But uh, I think a lot of the success of the companies, obviously, is due to your leadership. And one of the questions that I have for you, you know, we, we always talk a lot about succession planning and, uh, in various and sundry manners. But my, my question to you is, uh, what are you doing specifically in developing leadership in your company that ultimately will continue the success that you've been able to accomplish? Uh, I think the biggest change, I mentioned the learning culture, and that was about building um, programs, building um, uh, activities that will help develop people to next. Um, I just was trading text this morning with sort of my one of my key guys who is off to New York to take part in what we require of them, which is a going outside experience. They have to go talk to people in other industries outside of ours um, to understand how they operate, much like we're doing here today. So that's an expectation of all my leaders. Um, I think one of the biggest ones was we restructured our organization um, a couple years ago to really leverage how the business is run. VF, our parent company, runs a very interesting model, whereas the regional leaders that work as part of my brand, that run my brand in other regions, Europe, Asia, and uh, Latin America report up through our parent company's organization in that region rather than directly to me. So it places some challenges on how to ensure those things happen in the right way. Cultures put in place, that the business disciplines are done correctly. Um, but instead of tilting at windmills and trying to change the way the parent company operates, I put together a structure that allowed that to work to our best advantage by creating the Americas as a separate standalone territory as well. Um, it, it created an organization that truly is a matrix structure, and I have four key general managers that, that now run those regions who not only are, are 
accountable for the business in that region, but also responsible for putting together business plans, strategies, et cetera, and coming into the, the center, into the global headquarters, and talking about what are the metrics in their region that they've identified, um, what are their plans to grow the business, and how can I provide the assets through product and marketing to help them do their jobs the best they can. So we're the, we're the engine that builds the weapons to go to war, let's just say, and they have to devise the battle plan for their territory. But they have key responsibilities of not just business growth, but brand growth. And those people, those four general managers, as well as my heads of product and marketing globally that sit here, are sort of the, the key leaders of the organization that are being prepared for next. Um, and through of the variety of activities they're responsible for, product merchandising in the region, marketing in the region, business plans in the region, P&Ls in the regions, they start getting themselves prepared for larger activities. Um, and then I give them a number of developmental experiences on the side, so I put them in charge of a project that has global responsibility. So each of my general managers, whether they sit in Asia or Europe, have a project that they have to run for the course of at least a year that is a global in nature. So they have to lead their peer group Across the, across the globe to make it work. So in my eyes, that's preparing them to either run one of our other brands or run Vans someday. I love that idea of local autonomy when it comes to management. Um, at Barefoot, we developed a network of what we call barefooters. Um, like I said, when we went to Hawaii, uh, you know, we basically got our butts kicked until we put our guy in Hawaii. And then when we had a guy that was living there, he was telling us stuff about that market that we're really glad we found out because we wouldn't have found out about it any other way. And we had, we had a representative in the southeast and the northeast, all over the United States. But instead of a top-down business uh, where you have you know, the CEO, the, the vice presidents, and you know, the corporate he- uh, heads of uh, the divisions and the departments and the teams and the squads and the groups – we had a two-division company. We had sales, and we had sales support. That was our entire company. So if you were not in sales, you were in sales support. And that was the backbone of our culture. And so when we built leadership, we did it by acknowledgement, number one, validation, and permission, those three things. So I'll give you an example we would have a meeting every quarter. We'd bring in the salespeople, and we'd ask the salespeople to tell us what was going on in their marketplace. And we would have the marketing people, and we would have the design and the production people, and the CPA, and the lawyer, and the CEO, and the CFO, all sitting there listening to what these sales guys were saying. A whole different idea than coming up with raw materials, breaking them down into products, telling your marketing people that you need to have a program, and then foisting it on the salespeople and telling them that they got to make a sale. So we turned that whole thing upside down. So that's one of the things we did that created a lot of autonomy at the regional level. One of the problems we had one day is we had good news and bad news. We said, hey, guys. Guess what? We just got into Publix in, uh, in Florida. They got uh, 625 stores, another 300 in several states. That's the good news. They said, what's the bad news? I said, the bad news is they put us on the bottom shelf. Nobody's going to notice us. We got 90 days to sell or we're out of there forever. So this was a do or die, you know, instant death type deal. One of our guys jokes, he says, well, why don't we go after the foot traffic then? 
another lady said you know that's not such a stupid idea maybe we should have decals that are foot that are wine stained footprints that can lead people from the door to the bottom shelf where our wine is on the rack we did that in every state and that came from the receptionist why a culture of permission see we're all on the same team here we all get paid on sales growth and profitability at some level so how can we work together as a team to solve this sales problem? Sales and sales support. Yeah, Stay I'll add in. one more thing to preparing them for next to run the business too, which is, um, and along the lines of the CEO peer groups, each one of my executive team is required to have an executive coach or a mentor that I'm aware of, and then I do checkups, I do check-ins with. Not to, not to hear personal stuff they share, um, but to make sure that, I understand some of the things that are on their mind that, that need to be addressed in the bigger, broader business, but all of them are required to have an executive uh, coach or mentor. Thank you both. I'd like to thank them again now. Let's give them a round of applause. Uh, a meeting that starts on time ends on time, and we have a few minutes. As I, I opened this by saying uh, my why is to have a lasting positive impact on the lives of the clients that I work with. And Deborah's going around collecting the uh, cards for the drawing. So please don't be shy. Put your cards in there. We've got wonderful gifts to give away. I think you, I'd like to suggest that there were a couple things that hopefully you gained from attending today. One is, and maybe it's the most important. I think they're all important. Hopefully you've reinforced relationships with other members of the Orange County business community, or you've created some new relationships that you can use to perpetuate your business and the community that you have. And so I'm really glad that so many of you decided to participate this morning. I'm honored to have this quality of a group that would spend a couple hours with me on a Monday morning uh, and with our panel. I know you're not here for me. You're here for the panel. I get that. And that's the second thing, knowledge. I've taken several pages of notes. I saw many of you writing notes as well. Hopefully, uh, knowledge is power when you use it. So hopefully you'll take back your notes and share it with others in your company, maybe your clients as well, and put this into practice. It's the reason why we do this is to give you something that you can use to improve the performance of your business and hopefully your life. That's what we do. And then the last thing we want to do is we want to give you some stuff. So has everybody put the, their interest cards in there? Is there any more interest cards we need? Please. You need one. Does anybody have an extra interest card for Mari so that she can participate? I have the first thing we're giving away, and there are three of them. You have to be in a room to win, Kendra. Uh, I'm just saying. I know. It was supposed to end at 10 o'clock, so I'm going to try to be quick. The, the 30th anniversary of the Center Club is coming up. They're having a big gala here. It's... Um, it's a, on Friday, October the 30th. Uh, it's, the proceeds are going to uh, support several worthy nonprofits. It's a beer and wine festival right here. And the retail price is $75. We have three of these. So that's the first things we're going to draw. So uh, do we have everybody's interest cards? All right. So, Deborah, would you do me the pleasure of pulling out a name? This is for the Center Club 30th Anniversary Wine and Beer Party. All right. She's not looking. And the person's name is Brian Goodman. Brian, here's your check. Come on down, dude. Where are you? Brian, he's all the way in the back of the room. Would you make sure that he gets that, please? All right, that's one. We have three, two more to give away. And the grand prize is this lovely piece of art that was donated by HBLA's managing partner, Larry Gaselowitz. Uh, we'll be coming up to that in just a little bit. The second winner is Steve Cooper. Coop, there you are. Come on over and get your award. The third person to win 
And I guess the panelists, I'm sorry, but we didn't, we didn't get name cards. We're going to get your pictures after this is all done, so please don't leave. Don't leave Hector Garcia. Oh, there were two, sorry. Put that one back in. Yeah, this is Hector. There you go. Amazing. That's a lucky car. Ride with them next year. I know when I see one, I see the other for the peer groups usually in the morning. All right, continuing along. This is Brian's. Okay, I don't want to. Um, the next thing we have, this is a brand new, says right here, you've won a brand new Kindle Fire. Just came out last week. The latest of the latest. Whatever. So we're going to draw for, because we just don't give away Apple products. We do, we're, hey, Android, we're good. We're good. We don't know which one of them is going to, you know, we want to make friends with both. Craig Stenberg, congratulations on winning a brand new Kindle Fire. Because you can't have an event if you don't give away an iPad. Here's an iPad mini. It's, again, beautifully wrapped by Amazon, so they get a little bit of revenue off of this deal. And this says, you won a brand new Apple mini iPad. Thanks for attending the 2015 Executive Conference. And the winner is, or the person's name is, Karen Hill. Are you here, Karen Hill? Really well. Here you go, Karen. And I need to... Not only is he a fantastic managing partner, where are you, Larry? And I know this firsthand because I get to see it every month as he's grown. Um, you talk about culture and someone who cares about their organization and the people within it. Um, that's a culture that not only HBLA has, but truly Larry has as the managing director of that organization. Uh, he counts numbers good. I know. I mean, that's a joke. I know it should be well. My wife corrects me all the time when I make that mistake. Uh, if you ever visit his office, Mari, have you been to his office and seen the art that, that oh, you, you need to go to his office and see the work that he does? Uh, I'm very excited that you were generous enough to donate this, Larry, and I'm excited for whoever is lucky enough to be the name that Deborah pulled out of the whatever that is, and that would be Mike Haney. This party would not have happened if it wasn't for these two gentlemen who graciously gave of their time to be here. Michael flew down from Northern California to be here, and Kevin took time out. what He was in New York last week, right? Traveling the world, really promoting his brand. So I have these little thank you awards, once for Michael Houlihan and once for Kevin Bailey. Please give me one final round of applause for our two panelists for today.